Hope everyone's having a good Sunday morning so far. <clears throat> we are actually bringing to a conclusion today our series in the book of Acts. And so if you've been with us since we started that, good for you. If you've joined us along the way, hope uh, it's been meaningful. But yeah, we've been journeying through the book of Acts. We actually started in January, and so we're just bringing it to a close. And so don't think about how many weeks we've been in the book of Acts, because we've been here for a while. But it's been good as we've seen God use his people in the early church to expand the gospel in the church throughout the known empire at that time. And we've, we've seen how that does not just apply to them and how God works back then, but actually he works the same ways now, and he's using us in a lot of the same ways uh, to expand his gospel, expand his church through the communities we are part of. And so uh, it's hopefully been encouraging to you as we have seen that and how God uses us. And so as we bring it to close, we're going to see how that's true even today and how the story is not over, even though the book of Acts uh, ends. But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for this time when we can come before you, when we can gather as a body and open up your word and see how you worked and how you use people and communities and churches to expand and proclaim your truth. And so, Lord, I just pray for this time as we open up your word that you can bring it to life in our minds and our hearts, that we can see the truth that you want us to see, that you can move us how we need to be moved to be yours and all of who we are. Lord, we love you and seek you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do you sum up a life? How do you try to sum up someone's whole existence or whole life on this earth? And now, we try. We usually use things like epitaphs or eulogies to try to sum up who someone is. Epitaphs are those phrases or lines that we put on tombstones or grave markers that try to sum up someone's life. Usually more commonly, they might say like beloved daughter or, or devoted father or loving mother, something like that with the days of their, um, when they, they were born and when they died. But epitaphs try to sum up someone who they are. But, you know, people try to maybe get more inventive with an epitaph. You might list your accomplishments. Like Thomas Jefferson on his grave, grave uh, stone says, here lies Thomas Jefferson author of the Declaration of Independence and the Statutes Establishing Religious Toleration in the Commonwealth of Virginia. That he wanted to sum up his life, or people wanted to sum up his life, through uh, Winston Churchill, who has on his grave uh, stone, I am ready to meet my maker. Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. Or maybe they want to combine accomplishments in wit, like Mel uh, Blanc, who was the voice of Bugs Bunny, and on his uh, grave student, it says, that's all, folks. <laughs> we try to sum up lives, and epitaphs are pretty, you know, they're just a couple lines. And so we go to eulogies. And eulogies, these are ways we write up someone's existence or life, and they're printed in newspapers, they're read at funerals, they, they try to communicate someone who someone is just with the bare facts but they're kind of lacking, and so maybe they become more powerful when someone shares a personal story that kind of hopefully encapsulates someone's life or personality. But we try. We try to sum up people's lives. We try to use as few words as possible, but makes you start thinking, how is a life summarized? Or how can a life be summarized? And maybe you start thinking, how would my life be summarized? 
Maybe you were part of a class, because it's kind of common now, where you are given the assignment of writing out your own eulogy. How will you be remembered? How, how do you want to be remembered? And so it's a task that a lot of classes give to people because it helps encourage who I am. And so they have to think about that and they write it. What are my life's goals or the aims that I want people to know me for? But whether it's a eulogy or an epitaph, we start thinking about how can we sum up a person's life? And that's a good question to think when we come to the end of the book of Acts. Because as I said, when we come to this end of the book of Acts, we, we kind of hit this last part as Luke, the author, is summarizing, I think, for us all that has come before and kind of encapsulating who Paul was in his mission on this, world, on this earth as he has done it. And so if you've been with us as we journey through the book of Acts, you've seen how the book of Acts goes from Jesus kind of giving his disciples, his followers, that great statement in Acts 1.8 about how there'll be witnesses, not in just Jerusalem, but in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and how we see the whole rest of the book of Acts kind of living that out as the, uh, the, the disciples uh, preach the word and how the Spirit comes down at Pentecost and gives birth to what we would call the church nowadays and how they continue to preach the good word and how they're pulled in front of the, the ruling council and the, the Christians are then scattered and how the gospel starts going not just to Jerusalem but now to Judea and Samaria and how people who are not Jews start coming in first with the Samaritans and then for the Gentiles. I mean, the, I mean, the, the Christian church has this experience on the way to Damascus as he is confronted with his, the Lord Jesus Christ, as he says, why are you persecuting me? And how he's converted and comes to know who Jesus is and then gives his whole life over to this mission of making the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ known to all who would have ears and how he traveled through the known empire, first preaching in synagogues and then going to the Gentiles in the marketplaces and sometimes before their, their rulers and sometimes before for their intellectuals proclaiming who Jesus was. And now he's been, comes back to Jerusalem where the, the Jewish people uh, are, are mad at him because they think they're, he's perverting their faith. And so they trump up charges. He's arrested. He's, he's kind of rescued by the Romans and he appeals to Caesar and he's, and he's sent off to Rome. And so when we pick up the story in Rome, uh, in Acts uh, 28, we find Paul now in Rome and he continues to do what he always does. And I believe Luke, here in Acts 28, at the end of the, of the chapter, is giving us a summary as, as Paul operates just about who Paul is and what the mission of the church is as well. And so as we open up the Bible, I hope you can pick up your Bibles if you have it. If not, it's going to be on the screen. But we're going to read the last. Paul has arrived in Rome. He's... Uh, He's there, a soldier, he kind of keeps him under house arrest, but people come and he's allowed to move around pretty freely. And so in verse 17, it picks up the story and says this, after three days, so he's been in Rome for three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our father, fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished, me to, wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, objected I, compel, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I, I have asked to see you and to speak with you. 
since it is because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here have reported or spoken in the evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we, have, we know that everywhere is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. In a statement, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull, and their ears can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn as I would heal them, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I believe this passage sums up for us, in large part, Paul's ministry and his life. It kind of charts again. We see him doing the things that he's been doing through all of his missionary journeys, and he's doing them again. He's saying the same things. He's saying what he has hope in. He's saying his mission. He's kind of practicing what he believes in. And so we see that this is kind of a summary of who Paul is. And so if this is a summary of who Paul is, what should we take from this? And I think it challenges us, challenges us and moves us to question what is our summary of our life. And so I'd offer this, that this challenged us to think about this. May the hope of Christ sum up your life. That he gives his whole life to do it, to proclaim who Jesus is because he has his hope in Christ. And so it should challenge us to start thinking about where is my hope? What do I have hope in? What kind of gives my life meaning and sets the course of my whole life? And if you're a Christian, if you have come to believe in who Jesus Christ is, it should be that hope we have in Christ, that that undergirds and saturates all that we do. That when we wake up in the morning and start to course our day, underneath everything is this hope that we have in Christ. That as we live our lives as employees or bosses or students or teachers or in the workplace or at home or in the grocery store or on the road or wherever we find ourselves, undergirding it all should be the hope we have in Christ. That he has saved us. He has changed us. He has made us new. That as sinners we stand condemned, but yet he comes and he stands in our place and takes our sin upon himself so that we can have a life with our maker, our God. That may the hope of Christ sum up our life. This was what summed up Paul's life, and it challenges us as he states that not only in his journeys, but in other letters that he wrote, he states that this is the sum of his life. In 1 Corinthians uh, 2, 2, he says, for I've just of the, of, the, of the times, says, all I know is Jesus and how he stood in our place and died for us. Or in Philippians 1.21, he says, For me to, to live is Christ and to die is gain, saying, Christ is it. He is the end-all, be-all. And that's just to name a few, but it sums up his life, and so it should challenge us to think, how does that hope, or may that hope of Christ sum up 
our own lives as we think about how he has saved us and how he has given us this new life to live for him. And so here in Acts 28, as we get to the end of Paul's life recorded for us in the book of Acts, we see him doing the same things he always has done on these missionary journeys, preaching the gospel, proclaiming who Jesus is, trying to convince people, even while he's imprisoned in chains in Rome, he does the same thing. And history gives us, and church tradition tells us, that Paul ends up being martyred in Rome. He, he ends his life in Rome. But it might surprise you that this is probably not when it happens. That at the book of Acts ends, and Acts 28 kind of ends, and it, it seems to just stop. Now he's in prison for two years, and then Luke just kind of does not tell us how he dies. And actually, we don't find in the Bible any recording of how Paul dies, but church tradition in history says that he was timelines of Paul's life. We see that this account, Acts probably ends in AD 60, AD 62, as he's preaching in prison. And while he's in prison, he writes those letters of uh, Philemon and Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians. He writes those letters and mentions how he's imprisoned in Rome, and so we know he's writing those during those times. But then most likely, after those two years he's in prison at the end of Acts 28, he's then released. And what does he do? As we know through church tradition and, and what people most likely expect, he goes back on the mission field. He continues to do what he's been doing throughout the whole book of Acts until Nero comes to power and starts persecuting the Christian church, and he's arrested again and taken back to Rome, where he most likely was then executed. But whether he ended here or if it was a couple years later, it just shows us, really this sums up his life because he, he shows us, Luke shows us the essence of who he was. He was a preacher, a proclaimer of who Jesus was. He knew that his whole life was redefined by this hope in Christ and he proclaimed it to all who would hear. And so this passage, I believe, sums up Paul's hope. Where did he find hope? Well, we see where he finds hope because we can take a look at that verse 20 when he was talking to the Jewish leaders in Rome and with the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. He's telling them, it's the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. And now to us who are not Israel, us who are not Jewish in, in, in our background or, or faith kind of might think this is strange that Paul, who preaches Christ, would say it's the hope of Israel, which is why I'm in, in chains, why I'm imprisoned. But this is again Paul saying, hey, my hope is the hope that we've had since the beginning. My hope is not a new hope. I don't celebrate a new religion that's separate from the Jewish faith. My hope is actually the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. For I have the hope in Jesus Christ, the one who has been promised since the beginning, the one that the Jewish faith was looking for and hoping for and waiting and expecting. The one has come, and he is Jesus, and he has saved me. He's saying, this is the hope of Israel, the same hope that our fathers have been waiting for, that Jesus Christ is the one that was, that was talked about in Genesis 315, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, that Jesus Christ is the one that was spoken about in Isaiah, that promised child who would rule for us, that Jesus Christ is the true prophet that would come and speak words as the word of God, that Jesus Christ is the true king who would rule for all time as he was made to rule, that Jesus Christ is the true priest who could represent us perfectly before God because he was God and would be a perfect sacrifice for us as well, finds it, it's, it's, it completely in 
Jesus Christ. And so why am I chained? Because it's the hope of Israel, the true hope of the whole Bible, Jesus Christ, that I am proclaiming to people. He was encouraging these Jewish people to change their perspective and open their eyes that the Messiah, the one sent by God, has arrived. And they can know him and have life in him. This was Paul's whole life mission since he had that experience on the road to Damascus. He knew that Jesus was Lord. And he knew everyone needed to know that as well. And so he gave his life to proclaim it, first to his countrymen and then to other people because he knew everyone needed to know who Jesus was. Where is Paul's hope? In the hope of Christ. So where our hope needs to be as well. But this passage also sums up Paul's life as a preacher, as someone who is set on fire for God to proclaim who he is. I mean, you can just look at verse 23 of this passage, and it says, after the Jewish people come to him, what does it say? From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses. And what did he do? He preached to them. He expounded the word of God to them from the law of Moses and from the prophets, which is shorthand for all the, what we call the Old Testament. He took it all and said, this all testifies to Christ. This all that you guys, this, this word of God that you guys know, that you guys live by, it all points to him and you should see him for who he is. He's showing how the whole word of God points to Christ. The same thing that Jesus did back in Luke 24 after his resurrection as he's right, rock, walking on the road to Emmaus with some, some disciples and they're d- despairing and they're, they're kind of like, hey, we just saw our leader, the one we thought was the Messiah, die and we're not sure what's going on because we've heard some rumors that he's, he's risen and what does Jesus do? He walks with them and then it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That Jesus did this, showed how he is the fulfillment of all the Jewish uh, uh, scripture, which is our Old Testament, and now Paul does the same thing. He outlines to people, this is where our hope should be. This is where our f- the fulfillment of our, the Jewish hope is, within Jesus Christ. That he gave his all. He poured himself out to this task that he was committed to proclaiming Jesus Christ. For God and by God to just leave it all on the table. They pour themselves out into a task and they know this is what God has given me to proclaim who Jesus Christ is. And the whole world has changed. We see that in Paul as, as the church expands, how God uses him to expand the church, but we've seen that in other times throughout history. One of the big ones that comes to my mind is back in the great revival that happened um, uh, back in the, the 1500s, 1600s, when the, the church seemed to expand and people came to know who Christ was in new and bold ways in England and in the colonies. And God used one particular preacher to, to kind of help spread that fire. His name was George Whitfield, and he was this great preacher that, that traveled back and forth from England to the colonies, and he proclaimed the word of God to all who have ears. Sometimes people would not even let him preach in churches, so he would, he would preach out in, in fields, and thousands would gather just to hear him talk about who Jesus was. It's estimated that in his lifetime he, he preached at least 18,000 times to as many as 10 million hearers. And we're talking back 
back when America was a colony. And he famously said, I would rather wear out than rust out. This was a man dedicated to proclaiming the word of God. He gave it all so that he actually even died from all of his travels and complications when he didn't five. And his friends said it seemed like he was almost like a sponge that had been wrung out for Christ. That these people like Paul or George Whitfield or so many others we might think of or people you might even know, it seems like they know their tasks that they've been given by God to proclaim the truth of who God is to everyone who has ears. And whether it's Whitfield or Paul or someone else, God uses people to proclaim his truth, some in bigger ways than others, but he has called all of his people to be set on fire for this mission. That wherever you are, in whatever capacity you can, you proclaim who Jesus is to those who need to hear. Not all of us are called to be preachers in, in big ways. We're all given different talents and different spheres of influence, but I believe we are all called to have that same mission and that same passion. And so when we see Paul's life summed up as a preacher, it should challenge us and say, how can I proclaim who Jesus is when whatever context I find myself? What would it look like for me and my family to proclaim who Christ is to people who do not know him? What would it look like for me in my workplace to be that witness for Christ so that people could see who he is and perhaps follow him? That we're all Christ and proclaiming it go hand in hand. For when we have that great hope, when we know how Christ has saved us and changed us and made us new, we have to let other people know. We have to share with people so that they can respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. May the hope of Christ sum up our life. May it be that foundation. But this passage also shows us a summary. I say a summary of how people respond to God. Why? Because it shows us how the same thing that has happened in so many other cities when Paul preached the gospel happens again in Rome. In verse 24, after he kind of lays out a little bit of his argument, it says, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. If this sounds familiar to you, it should, because as I said, this, has, this is kind of a summary of what has happened when the gospel is declared. Some believe and some do not. It happened in Pentecost. Some believed and some did not. It happened every time Paul or Peter proclaimed the gospel. Some people hearing believed and some did not, which raises the question, why do some believe and some do not? Which is maybe the hardest thing to wrestle with within Scripture. Why do some people, when they hear the gospel claim, the sweet beauty of how Christ saved them, why do they respond positively and then other people struggle with? If you've ever proclaimed or shared your faith with anyone, Probably you wrestled with this. Why did someone respond or not respond? Some people kind of start thinking about this and say, well, maybe it's on me. Maybe I have not preached it well enough. Maybe I was not clear enough. Maybe I was not winsome enough. Maybe I was not convicting enough. Maybe I was just something not enough. Other people put it on the person. Well, maybe they just don't want to believe, or maybe they're just not open to hearing, or maybe they're just not doing what they need to do or, or paying attention like they should. Well, it shouldn't surprise us when we read Scripture and we start talking about why do some people 
believe and why some people don't believe, Scripture takes all these reasons we might think and brings them together and say, yeah, those reasons might contribute to that. Scripture talks about how sometimes it's the preachers. People have to preach so people hear to respond. And some people have hardened hearts and they they won't respond. And and some people are are not going to respond to gospel. But then underneath it all, it talks about how in all of this, whether people are not responding or people are responding, God is the one working and changing hearts. God is the one moving in people to respond or not respond. That's actually why Paul starts quoting Isaiah 6. 9 through 10. It's this famous passage. Basically, it's kind of like, who's going to go and proclaim who I am? And Isaiah says, send me into this. What does God say? Go. Preach my word. They're not going to listen. That's a great, encouraging kind of statement for Isaiah, right? Go. Declare who I am. But the people are not going to respond. And it shows how God is moving in, and actually the preaching is actually judgment upon people because they had every opportunity, and they knew how to respond, and they didn't. And so the, the preaching actually becomes judgment upon them. And so when we look at all these things, and we see how Scripture brings them together and say, well, why do people, some people respond, why don't? And we have those three kind of causes, whether it's the preaching or the person or God moving, we can think, well, which ones do I have control over? I really only have control over how I proclaim the truth. I can't change someone's heart. I can't dictate to God how he's going to move in someone. And so when we realize that, we realize our task is just to proclaim the truth of who God is, to be faithful in that, and trust God to take care of the rest. I love this analogy that comes from uh, Greg, I think his last name is Kokel. Uh, and he has this book called Tactics it's about sharing your faith, but he uses this analogy of, of baseball. He says, so often people hit a home run. And if they haven't hit a home run and someone comes to know Christ, they somehow have failed. And then they go, well, maybe not hit a home run, but maybe we sit up a stand up bat and we hit some singles or some doubles and someone's going to come up behind us and clean up and someone's going to come to know faith. He says, that's putting the responsibility of how someone's changed on us, which we can't change someone. Rather, our responsibility as Christians is just to step up to plate. That's all we're called to do. We might strike out. We might hit the ball and someone responds to the gospel. But all we're called to do is be faithful and proclaim who Jesus is to the best of our ability and trust God to be working in people's lives. And so that's what we see in Paul. What did he do? He knew his, his job, his task, to proclaim who Jesus was, and he trusted God to be powerfully working in people's lives. And we do the same thing. We proclaim who Jesus is and trust God to grab hold of people's hearts and minds. That God can use our feeble attempts and our stuttering words in ways we can't even fathom. That God can take the most inept proclamation of the gospel and use it to spark something in someone's heart that they would respond or want to seek out more. And that we just have to be faithful. Because may the hope of Christ sum up our life. When we look at the book of Acts and the summary of Paul's life, it ends at the very end of the book of Acts with basically like a tagline of his life. 
when it says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. What a tagline for life. Like this is, this could sum up, this could be Paul's epitaph on his tombstone. This is what he did. He proclaimed with boldness. He taught with boldness. He did this with welcoming everyone. It's what's a tagline for it. And it makes us think, shouldn't this be the same tagline for our own lives? That for Christians, when we think about what sums up our life or what drives our life, shouldn't be these things be the same thing and we can pull from those the same encouragements to live for Christ in the same ways? That we welcome all. Paul welcomed all. He was in prison, and he welcomed all. And that, and that phrase means he probably was welcoming back those Jews who were convinced. He was probably welcoming in Gentiles who had heard and wanted to hear from him. And that we know from Philippians, he says, hey, I'm in change, and this is, this is a good thing because the Roman guard, the imperial guard, even has heard the gospel proclaimed. And so you can see that as this guard sits there and listens to Paul, and they listen, and they hear, and maybe they're changed, and maybe the Spirit grabs hold of them, and they believe in Jesus Christ, and the church in Rome all of a sudden goes from being a Jewish church that believes in Jesus Christ to including Roman soldiers or other people who have heard the gospel, he welcomed all to hear who the gospel was. And shouldn't that be the same way for us? That we welcome all, we proclaim it to all, whoever steps into these doors, we welcome them and treat them like valued members and guests and say, hey, you need to hear this. I don't know where you stand with the Lord. I don't know what you believe, but we all need to sit under his word and hear who he is. We welcome all. We don't judge people like, well, maybe that person shouldn't hear, or maybe that person doesn't need to hear, or I don't know if we want those people here. No, we welcome all because all need to hear who Christ is and hear the glorious gospel. And it says that Paul proclaimed the kingdom of God and, and taught about Jesus Christ with boldness. He proclaimed who Jesus was and taught. And shouldn't that be what we do? That we declare who Jesus is and we help te- walk people through what it means to be a follower of Christ and what it means um, um, uh, when we read the Bible and we, we help teach people and ground people in their faith as we proclaim the truth and we do it with boldness. Sometimes we can be scared or maybe nervous about proclaiming who Jesus is or we don't know how it might be. It fits with boldness. doesn't mean we're jerks about it. Doesn't mean we rush in like a bull in a china shop. No, but we do it with boldness. Like we're not scared to tell who Christ is. We're not scared to even proclaim it when people might say, well, really? You sound like a Jesus freak or you sound weird or I don't know if I believe that. We do it with boldness because we know that's what is required and we know what God calls us to do that, to be bold in this truth. And Paul did not have any hindrance as he proclaimed the truth of God to the Roman people. And so we pray that we don't have any hindrance as well. That when we come and we start thinking about how we can teach and how we can proclaim, we pray for there not to be hindrances, hindrances that things don't keep us from being able to pray, I mean, to, to preach who Christ is. That's what it means to follow Christ, to be taken with him, to walk in his ways that, that, that the sum of of, of his hope is, is who we are, that we, we are changed by him. Now we live for him, and we see that we're called, all Christians are called to be used by him to help grow the church, grow the community of faith. <clears throat> I love the end of the book of Acts because it seems to just stop. 
It doesn't, actually doesn't seem to stop. It just stops. What happens next? You don't give us the end. It seems to end on this cliffhanger, and I can't help but think that's intentional. Because Luke is writing, and he says kind of like, this ends, Paul worked for the gospel that we're going to record for all time, but the story hasn't ended. The story is going to continue. I, 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 can't, believe, I, I can't believe he just doesn't end this, this ends like that, not for any reason, but it's actually showing the story of the church expanding, a church moving into different cities, the church changing people's lives as it proclaims the gospel, that that spread is not over. It's rather just getting started. That the book of Acts ends in such a way is that as we sit here, roughly, you know, 1940 years later, from these events that happened, we realize, wait a minute, we are actually part of that same story. That why the book of Acts kind of ends here is actually telling us the story is not over, that the story continues, and we are part of it. We're included in it. We're not just part of it, actually. We're contributors to it. It's not like we're going to add our stories about how we grow to the New Testament. No, but we're contributors to the story of the spread of the church that we're part of this story that is laid out for us. And I love how message and mission are unchanging until the king returns. That the messengers change, but the message, the mission stays the same. And now us, 1940 years later, are a part of that same mission. Are now the new messengers God's going to use to expand his church. Which makes us ask the question, is that you? Is your life summary the hope of Christ that would encourage you and change you to proclaim this to anyone who would have ears? Is your life one given over to Christ that now the hope of Christ undergirds everything you do and everything you think and everything you operate in this world? Not perfectly. We never does this perfectly. We mess up. When, and that's the great thing about the hope of Christ is that when we mess up, he picks us up. When we mess up, he forgives sin. When we mess up, he puts us back on the road we need to be going on. But isn't that our hope? Isn't that changing us and defining our whole life? May the hope of Christ sum up our life. There was a great preacher uh, back in the 1800s who said, if Christ be anything, he must be everything. That if Christ be anything, if we, we believe anything that Christ said about himself is true, then he must be everything. He must be, challenges us and, and sums up our whole life. And I believe that's true, that if we know the hope of Christ, and if you don't know the hope of Christ, I pray that you look at him afresh and see the hope that we have in him. That if you don't know the hope in Christ, see who he is, the beauty that the Bible presents, that God comes down in the flesh as we're celebrating on Advent and Christmas. That because of his love for us, he comes to us. In spite of our sins, we have done nothing to earn us. We do nothing to entice him to come. In fact, we do everything opposite. We rebel. We spit in God's face. We want to go our own way. We do our own thing. And yet, God loves us. 
And he demonstrates that by sending his son to us. God, the second person of Trinity, the son, steps down into helpless babe, born as a human to represent us, living a life to represent us, but he does it perfectly. He does it as we are made to do that we could not do, so that now when he stands in our place, when he dies in our place, he can take our sin upon himself and give us his righteousness, his right standing before God, so that through him, our faith in him connects us and unites us to him. We can now be made new. We can now be made new and walk in his ways. We now can be, have a right relationship with our God. We can be saved from sin, death, and the enemy. When we have that hope, that truth of the gospel, it changes us. We're redefined. now see meaning and purpose through it all because God made it all and he's called us now to walk with boldness and proclaim who he is. That the sum of our life is the hope we have in Christ. That's not a call to push everything else aside and become a monk who reads his Bible and prays all day. No, this is a call that in everything you do, you do it for the glory of Christ. This is a call that everything you do, the challenges you face, the, the accomplishments you achieve, and everything you do, you do it by faith in him. And everything you do, you trust that it's his power that works in you, not your own, to live for him. And that we trust that when we are called to proclaim the gospel and preach the truth of who he is, God is at work to change hearts and minds so people respond. That's what it means to have the sum, that the hope of Christ sums up our life. That in everything we do, it's saturated and flavored and undergirded, and defined by who Christ is. Let that be us. Let that be us as we leave and go through our lives. Let our, may the hope of Christ sum up our life. Join me in prayer. Truth that we have seen throughout the book of Acts, throughout your whole word, your love that you have for us, the, the, the concern you have for us, and how you provide for us. Lord, I just pray for all of us here, all of us who call upon your name, that we can trust in you and, and love you and, and be moved and be changed by you. To see you for who you truly are, to walk in your ways, to, to be bold in proclaiming and teaching who you are to all who would hear. Lord, I pray for anyone who does not cling tightly to that hope in Christ or the hope of Christ. I pray that they can have the courage to actually look at him anew, ask someone to help them look at him. Lord, I pray for us that do have that hope. Let it define us. Let it drive us. Let us encourage us. Let us pull us into everything that we're called to do. Lord, we love you. We seek you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's all stand. And let's sing with hearts of gratitude and praise to him.